Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. The Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast is now supported by the Urban Land Institute. To find out more about becoming a member, please follow the link in the show notes, remembering to quote the promo code ACRE to take advantage of all the benefits of our partnership. More details at the end of this podcast. So this evening, I'm sat with Jonathan Goldstein. Jonathan is the Chief Executive Officer of Kane International, a business he co-founded in 2014, a sales spin into a privately held real estate investment firm with just shy of six billion US dollars of debt and equity transactions in Europe and the United States. Now, Jonathan, in keeping with every article I've read before the recording, they all start with the same. Youngest partner for leading a law firm, Old Swang, at 28. City's youngest CEO of a major law firm at 32. And then you choose to leave the legal profession to run General Johnson, spending seven years as deputy CEO. Now, we're going to spend a bit of time getting to that, I think. Um, but before we do, do you mind if we start with chapter one? Where did that career begin? Uh, well, first of all, Nick, hi. Nice to meet you. Nice to speak to you. And thanks for having me on. Um, You're welcome. That's it. Look, look, when you sit here now and you look back on life, it's such a difficult question to say where it started. I actually don't think I can get away from the same answer which I had, which is when I was 18 years old, I went to a state grammar school in Ilford and none of my family had been to university at that point. And I got five rejections from university because I was too lippy at school. And in those day and age, you didn't really get visibility on uh, your predictions were. And I'd applied to be a lawyer. And that gave me a kickstart to say, you know what, young man, you're embarrassing yourself. You're letting yourself down. And uh, I did much better in my A-levels than school had predicted. I got into Manchester through UCA, through the clearing process. And then, uh, you know, didn't do very well at university either, but met the woman who is now my wife. And she turned around to me at some point in time and said, you know what, you're a smart boy, but you're letting yourself down. You don't concentrate. You don't focus. And you're wasting your ability. And so that triggered me at law school to get a move on and actually sit down and focus and do it properly. And I, ever since then, I've been obsessed with this notion of maximizing potential. You know, what is my potential? What can I achieve? You know, how does that make me feel when I do or don't achieve things? And I've been obsessed with that with people around me and I'm trying to make sure that people around me do their best and get the best out of them. So. Long answer to a short question for which I apologize, but uh, that gives you an idea of, you know, the driver in me, which which is both a good and a bad thing to try to do my best and, and always do my best. Okay. Now, given this is a, a real estate podcast and you started life as a as a lawyer, why why law? What was what was drawing you to that at that time? So so my, my father and grandfather were in the dress business in Whitechapel. It was a very typical journey of Jewish families who had been in the country since the early you know, 20th century. And there were no professionals in my world in Ilford, except for one. I had an uncle, Uncle Raymond, who was a lawyer, and everybody respected him. He was like the decent man around. He was the man that everybody turned to if they had a problem, and he was the mentor to many, and he was a kind, generous, wise human being. And it just seemed like, you know what, if, if it's good for Raymond, it, I, I might not do too badly doing that. So I sort of followed his path and worked at his law firm for a couple of summers and liked what I saw. It felt comfortable for me. Um, I did think about the criminal angle once, but then decided that really wasn't a great career. Um, so that's how I followed it. It was a pretty simple, old-fashioned notion of having a mentor. I really believe it's a great thing for people to have mentors. And it, you know, when I've I've done a lot of talks in schools, and I give that thing about having a mentor, and I sort of put up a picture of Kim Kardashian, and I say not her, and a picture of Justin Bieber, and say not him, you know, and say look, you know what, choose someone in your world who you can relate to, who is close to you, or or who you've met, and who you think, you know what, I'd quite like to roll, you know, model myself on that person, and so that's how my life panned out. It's been good for me, and I'm sure it could be good for many others. Okay. Well, let's let's dip a bit more into that start of that legal career then. So it, we know it moves then from Manchester to uh, to the city. Give us a bit of an insight then into this twenty-one-year-old. What was what was what was your drivers then? You mentioned about sort of it being your best, but did you realise that at that young age? 
Well, I started being a lawyer. I started a trainee contract at 22 and then I qualified at 24. And I was, you know, when I look back on myself, I must have been horrendous to be near because there was a few of us in a firm called S.J. Bowen at that point in time and we were very, very aggressive. Aggressive negotiators, aggressive in trying to, uh, you know, find clients and make a difference. And it's sort of in you, I think, or it's not in you. So I think I, I... had it early on that actually I wanted to make a difference. And I was lucky, you know, I've always believed that there's a huge amount of fortune in people's careers. And I had a couple of lucky breaks early on where people thought, you know what, he's quite smart, he knows what he's doing. And, and, but I had two particular breaks in about 1994 in terms of winning clients. And the thing in most law firms at that time, and in fact, I think still now, there's a massive distinction between client you know, providers, people who can actually go out there and they're in the business and people who do the business. And I think that those people who can actually go out there and create the business and find the business have always been hugely valuable to law firms. And if you can show you can do that in your mid-20s, then people will gamble on you. And that's what happened with me. I had a couple of very big, one very high-profile win. And uh, that set me up, really. And uh, But you've got to be lucky. You've got to have someone on the other side of the trade who's prepared to back it. And I was very, very lucky that I had that. So you've you've managed to, I'm not sure whether this is being humble or or not, but you skipped over, I think, sort of you know, the, that first milestone in the career about sort of achieving partner just four years out of at a law school. Yeah. No, I, 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 you can overanalyze these things looking back. And the world was different in 19, whenever it was, 1995 or whatever. But, you know, when you, when you see people today who say, I want to be this level or that level or the other level, it's not how you view yourself. It's how other people view you. And I had got to the point very early in my career where clients were treating me as a partner. In other words, they didn't need me supervised. They didn't need me watched over by anybody else. They were happy just to trust my judgment. And when that happens and, you, and, and the firm can see that, then firms are stupid not to recognize that. And you know, Oldswang, led by Simon Oldswang at the time, who was a very important mentor to me in the 90s, you know, recognized that and made me a partner. And I think that the problem today in most of the professional firms that I see is they, through their sheer size, they have completely removed that ability for people to to aggressively go up through the scales um, and go up through the, the, the leagues. And as a result, they're losing huge amounts of, of young talent. I see it with my own son. My own son works in a, in a very, very large professional service firm. And, and, and the rigidity of the various levels that they're prepared to allow people to have responsibility is ultimately dictated by the mean. In other words, the average person, which means that the great people, they're going to lose. People are going to fall off the edge because they're going to get bored too quickly. I was lucky enough that Oldswang at the time recognized that I was capable of taking on responsibility and let me get on with it. Well, let's stick with that theme about about the, you talk about with the look of being sort of recognised, but you're, do, you're doing something that others aren't, in all, it, it, just by the nature of the fact that you're being selected and others aren't. What do you think that was? You know, I, I, think, I think it still sits today, okay? The ability to take a decision and take responsibility for that decision is a hugely important asset in people's makeup in their careers. Because making decisions involves risk. And it doesn't matter if that decision is to go wear a red tie or a blue tie today, or whether or not it's to you know pay X or Y million, but ultimately they have to make a judgment. And sometimes those judgments are going to be wrong, okay? And you have to live with those very much that are wrong. But if you get six or seven big decisions right out of 10, you will flourish. What I find is that most people can't make a decision. It was Alex Ferguson who was asked just before he retired, how comes he knew that all his decisions were right? And he said, don't be stupid. Of course, I know they're not right. I just know that when I have to make a decision, I have to make a decision. And when I've made that decision, I've got to stick with it. And that's a philosophy that I've lived by. You know, we made the decision this weekend. We were bidding on a deal and we got it wrong. We didn't get the deal. But you know what? There's no jobbing backwards. You can't be a professor of hindsight science. Ultimately, I think the big uh, factor is not 
I'm not the cleverest person out there. I was never the best lawyer out there. I'm not the smartest businessman now today either. There's lots of clever men and women cleverer than me. But I do have an ability to make a decision and understand that and stick by it. And I'm also big enough to acknowledge when I've got something wrong. And if I've got something wrong, I'm the first to put my hand up and say, I'm wrong. Let's change it. And that is a a strength that not many people have, either the decision-making capability or, more importantly, a, a level of humility to admit that you can be wrong. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. Let's test out my theory. We were talking before we came on into the recording about my theory about chapters, accelerating and resting. Now, stick, sticking still within with the earlier days of your career, you've spent, what we're looking at, roughly nine years at Altswang, so from being a, a trainee then to being a partner to being the CEO. Yeah, the, the, the grand old age is 32. Is there a resting period? Is there a plateau in that time? Yeah, the last two years of my chief executive, yeah, the last two to two and a half years of me being CEO of the business. So this is years 2005 to 2007? I would say, yeah, yeah. The years 2005 to 2007, I knew that I had to do something else. Otherwise, my head was going to explode. I knew that I had to find a different challenge because I didn't feel challenged. And that was, by your definition, a resting period. It wouldn't have been, most people wouldn't have looked at me and said, you're resting, because I wasn't. I was working all God's hours and, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. But in my own character development, my own business development, I was resting. And how does that make you feel? Because I, I, I think it's unique to, to, to our guests about how they feel in these periods. Uh, what do you mean by unique? Or, or unique to your guests in terms of, I, th- I think there is, to the guests we've had on so far, I think they f- they feel different when they are in this resting period than I think maybe your, your average man or woman on the street. I felt frustrated. I felt very frustrated. I felt that I was running a business of 90 partners, that I had taken it an awful long way. Um, in my view, there was only one way to take it from there, which was to take it globally, but I didn't think I would have a happy partnership in doing so. But more than that, I knew that the structure was not right for an organization of its size for long-term people. There were too many opinions and uh, the, the ability to execute against decision-making was, was, was challenging. Law firms were still in the middle of that hiatus of converting more fully to a corporate model. But on a personal level, I, I, I felt that I needed to see whether I could actually cut it on the other side of the table. I felt that I had some potential in me to see which trade deals to follow, which not to follow, which people to back, which people not to back. And it was a talent in me that I felt was there that I wanted to assess whether or not it was capable of, you know, fulfilling that potential. And as you'll hear me say repeatedly, maximizing my own potential has been a continuing obsession of mine. So I I felt for a couple of years, you know, that I needed to, find a way to maximize that potential. But I also know, knew that whilst I'd been running a business that was you know, approaching 100 million pounds turnover, I needed a bridge to the outside world to help me and to, to smoothen me out. I knew I had a lot to learn. And I think that what most people are not prepared to do, Nick, and that's why they get stuck in their careers, is they're not prepared to take that risk of going from a position of authority and we know where everybody's you know answering to your tune to take a step backwards and go and be someone's right hand man to then understand that that would be a springboard to take you on to the next level and i was lucky enough to have gerald that was prepared to take that risk on me but equally i was prepared to take that risk in you know becoming a right hand man to someone who was known to be strong and authoritative and you know very much have his own mind um, because it had served him so well throughout the whole of his life. And yet I was prepared to put myself in that position because I knew I had enough confidence in my own capabilities to know that I would find my own way through that. I wanted to spend a bit of time on, on that risk. What did, what did the people around you think of, of, of that move? <laughs> That's a great question. So my wife was dead against it. Right? She 
having pushed me and seen me, you know, flourish and do well, she thought I was, had gone crazy. Not because she'd had anything about Gerald, but just because, you know, where I got myself from where we'd started was a very great position. Interesting enough, I, I, I went through a period, interestingly, of about three, four weeks after I'd received the offer from Heron, where I just couldn't make my mind up. I, I was sort of vacillating for a couple of weeks. It was driving me crazy. So I, I did something which I would recommend to anybody in my position or in a position like that where they can't make their mind up, which is I basically delegated the decision to my brother and my brother-in-law, who I'm both exceptionally close to. And I said, look, you know, I'm driving myself mad. What do you think? And they both said, just looked at me and went, oh, for God's sake, Johnny, just get on with it. You've been going on and on about this for two, three years. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You know you'll end up doing something else that you want to do or you'll go back in the law or whatever, whatever. Just get on with it. And it was great advice from both of them. And I, so the second thing I did was I, I did a deal with myself that if I woke up two mornings in a row and felt that the decision was right, I wouldn't think about it anymore. And that happened after I'd spoken to both my brother and brother, both of whom interestingly are called Michael, but that's just by the by. And uh, the rest is history. What about, you mentioned then about the, the brother's advice about, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Isn't one of the worst things that can happen, you could suddenly have a, um, a dent in that, in that reputation? But that's risk, isn't it? That's, that's the risk factors, isn't it? I had lots of, lots of, uh, crossover points with Gerald and I was very confident it would work out and uh, you know at the end of the day you look around most people that you know who have been successful they've taken a level of risk at some point or time in their career and uh, you know risk is risk and uh, you know I, I think that, that if I turned it the other way Nick the notion that in 2020 I would still be running Oldswang or a form thereof. I mean, it's merged with Cameron McKenna, the very big law firm since then, but I, or a form thereof, is an anathema to me. It's just ridiculous. What would I be doing? I'm 54 years old now. I mean, I couldn't possibly do that for 20 years. I, I, would, I would go crazy. They would go crazy. I'd have been booted out by now anyway. So, um, I, you know. I remember right early uh, on in my career at Oldswang, when I became CEO, a senior partner of another law firm turned to me in a very posh voice. He said, Jonathan, he said, do you come from a rich family? And I said, no. He said, are you a gambler? And so I said, no. And he went, but what are you doing then? You're far too young to be doing what you're doing. He says, because in six, eight years, they're going to want you out. doesn't matter if you're Jesus. And um, I went, I was actually quite upset by that. I went home and I went, you won't believe what this man who doesn't know me just said to me. And, um, but he was right. Ultimately, he was right. Ultimately, he knew that you know, it would have a shelf life and it did. But you know what? It worked out well. Well, I, I, I think I could talk to you for hours about, about that risk because I, I strongly disagree with you about risk is risk. I think it's a very subjective opinion. But let's, let's, let's move on. No, no, sorry. Sorry. You have to, be, you have to understand me. Risk, everybody has their own tolerance level for risk. That we agree on. Of course it's subjective. What I'm saying to you is if you're not prepared to take any risk, you will end up plateauing and sitting in your comfort zone for the entirety of your career. And at some point in time, that will play against you. That, you know, it just will. I've seen it enough times. So I just think it's about your tolerance level for risk. That's all. Okay. Well then, let's let's talk let's talk about post this uh, this move post this post that risk and and those very very early early days with the uh, with Gerald Ronson. Now this is a, a real character of our industry, but I but I suspect very very few people have had an opportunity to get to know him. What were those first impressions like? Well, look, first of all, I am hugely respectful for Gerald. I, I adore him. I admire what he stands for. He's had his ups and downs in life. But boy, has he come back strongly. He's incredibly philanthropic, incredibly charitable, and is an example to many of us that, of the way in which you should live your life. Having said that, he's got, as he would like to believe, and I think he would want me to say, he's got a rough edge. You know, you, you, you go up against him, you pick a fight with him, and you'll often come away, you know, second best because he's smarter than most, and he's very sure of his own opinions. So... You know, that is a great experience and it's a great grounding. 
But there's a thing about Gerald and working with Gerald that not many people realize, and it taught me something, is that his attention to detail and his repeat mechanisms across very many areas of his business is, is a huge and great example. And that is something which I, I, I still aspire to copy because he has his mind structured in a way which is hugely, hugely impressive. So it was a great learning curve. I was caught out a number of times, but always with a smile on his face or a twinkle in his eye. But ultimately, I think we were a good double act and we formed another business called Ronson Capital Partners, which you know, did two great residential developments. And we then went out together in 2011 and with the backing of Invest at the South uh, Bank in Richmond from South Africa, went out and bought the entire petrol station chain of Total. And that was a deal which, you know, I found, I suppose you could say, but then with Gerald, I could never have done it without Gerald because his knowledge of the petrol station business was extraordinary. And the backing of Investec was hugely important for our financial credibility. But we went out and bought 700 sites up and down the country. Uh, you know, I became a partner in that business. Gerald bought me out in 2014 when I, you know, moved on. All consensually. I mean, I speak to Gerald two, three times a week still. So, uh, fact that, you know, we went for a walk at the weekend, which is allowed under the current regime. So, you know, I, I, was I daunted when I started there? hundred percent. I used to make a joke. Everybody used to say to me and my friends would say to me, what are you going to do with him? What are you actually going to do? So one of my friends determined that my job was going to be to cut his cigars and make the tea. And you know what? I was happy with that. You mentioned about the you, this is me paraphrasing that fire in your belly when you started that legal career to maximize your potential. Was the drive now in your second profession greater than the first? Uh, I'd say it's different. In law, everything's quite measurable, right? In other words, everything's quite measurable and quite public. You know, the turnover of your firms is public. You know, you have the top 100 law firms and then you have the average partner pay and, you know, people sort of understand what the scales are within the law firm. And it's quite measurable. Reputationally, you had the legal one, the 500, and you could track how you were doing year on year, if you understand what I mean by all that. So everything is quite empirical. In the real estate business, uh, no, no one tells people the truth, right? It's all smoke and mirrors. No one's really honest about this development or that development or that investment or this investment. You know, who's done best or who's done worse. So I think it's a different driver. I think it's a much more, you're looking at things from a much more personal perspective about how you are performing and are you doing well. And when you run a portfolio, like I run a portfolio now with you know 30 odd equity investments, five or six companies we are investors in and, you know, billions of dollars of debt that we've written. You really are as happy as your least happy child. So you are looking at your portfolio and you're always worrying about the problem child children because there's always going to be a problem child. Back to my six or seven out of ten, right? Yep. You're always going to have problem children. So you're much, it's a much different basis of, of analysis, but it's very, very satisfying when you get it right, but not for very long because one of my other mentors – and I think this has kept me grounded to a certain degree. Others would say I'm hugely arrogant, but I, I actually think I'm, I'm okay in that area, is that I don't look backwards. I'm really not interested in what I've achieved yesterday. So I'm slightly embarrassed when you say, you know, youngest law firm, chief executive, or, you know, I, my father passed away last year, and my mother turned up with a magazine which I'd forgotten I was, you know, lawyer of the year in 2002 or something. It's all sort of irrelevant to me, only about tomorrow. And I think it's, a mat it's an attitude of mind that, that means, you know, how can I do well for me? Because now the only people that really matter to me are my partners and the other investors in the deals. You know, I want to have done a good job for them. So, so it's a different measurement than it was before. Do you think that's a clue in, uh, as to why you may have allowed yourself to rest or to plateau shorter than others, that living in the moment element? I just don't like the feeling of, of, not, of being inactive. I've always taken on uh, obligations 
where I've seen an opportunity for myself. But I think uh, I've been quite strategic and for myself in being able to see where I should go and where I shouldn't go. And as I've got older, I think I have become better at seeing what would be good for me and what would not be good for me. What situations do I perform well in? What situations do I not perform well in? So I think I've become better in that. In that, But, you know, I, I still today, I mean, if I was, someone was to come in and make an offer for Kane tomorrow and I was to accept it, or Todd and I were to accept it, put more appropriately, I um, would have to do something else because I would go mad. The notion of waking up and having nothing to do is, you know, I, I don't think I'll ever be like that, ever. Let's move on a little bit then, because inevitably we'll, we'll run out of time. There's there's so much thing I'd, I'd like to talk about. But you you gave us a, uh, an inkling as to the opportunity with uh, with Ronson did had a shelf life. Well, we just we, we we were different generations, okay. I mean, Gerald won't mind me saying because it's been publicised. Is now the other side of eighty, and then about two thousand twelve thirteen, there were a couple of things I wanted to do which just didn't fit his view of where he wanted to be and and you know and I thought to, you know, and I thought to myself you know what he might be right it might be wrong for him and whether they were the right things or wrong things to do is irrelevant now as it happens I think they would have been good but they didn't fit his view of where it was going to be and I said to him look you know what I, I love you but you know I need to see if I can do it for myself because I need to live and die by these decisions and I don't want to look back in five or ten years time and I hope you work for another 30 years. And that's proven to be the case, because if you see him today in 2021, I mean, he might be 81 or whatever. He looks 61. He's unbelievable. And I hope he's got another 30 years in him. And But that's the way I want to be. And I didn't think I would be that if I was working with him still, because I needed to see whether I could do it. So I decided to do my own thing back in 2012, 2013. I had met the people from Guggenheim. They said to me, come and build a business for us in Europe. That lasted about four months because it just for regulatory reasons, it was never going to work properly. So we splintered the business off. And then my partner, who was uh, president of Guggenheim Partners at the time, wanted to do his own things. And so we set the business up separately as a joint venture between his company and, and me. Uh, and in 2015, that then went fully off on its own. And, uh, I think we've had a pretty good run, you know, not, not been perfect. A couple of things I've, you know, got a bit of egg on my face on, as you would expect in a portfolio like that, but generally very good. Well, I'm not going to let you get away with just um, glossing over that too too quickly because lots of, <laughs> lots of that people can people can read for themselves, can't they? Um, how easy a decision was it to leave Ronson and then to, to set up your own? How clear a vision did you have at that time? I didn't have that clear a vision, but it was it became a simple decision for me. It became a simple decision for the reasons I set out, which is that I I I I wanted to carry on maximizing my own potential. I wanted to know what it was. I wanted to know how I would carry it. I'm still learning. I will learn till the day I die, and I will make mistakes until that point in time. But it was very clear to me that that was the right thing for me, and that. I would be able to leave in good terms with Gerald. And, uh, you know, as I've said, I still speak to him all the time. So, you know, all those years later, that's proved to be the case. So it actually became very clear. I think these things become very clear to most people. I just think most people ignore the signs deliberately. They just don't want to face it. They don't want to face up to reality. They want to face up to the fact that if they carry on where they're going, they're going down a horrible cul-de-sac. And therefore, they just plow on regardless and they ignore the signs they don't read the tea leaves people some people are just not capable of doing that or they don't want to do that and as i've said to you before most people i've seen who have refused to do that have ended up getting burnt because they've been in a career or a company for too long and that company has ended up having serious problems or otherwise which has rebounded on that person sticking with the new the the start of the new venture I don't think you're. I don't think you typically go in for titles, do you? I don't, you've mentioned about sort of your your sort of thoughts on some of those, uh, let's say, some of those achievements beforehand. But what what did you want to learn? 
what did you what did you want to get out in terms of that maximum potential you that's your your phrase you know what what did you necessarily need to piece together in order to get to to reach a, a new a new level I think that what you need to do is, and, and this is, uh, you, you know, I've heard, I'm sure other people say, you learn much more from your mistakes than you do from watching other people's successes. Uh, definitely, but few people set out to make a mistake to learn, do they? No, but everybody makes mistakes. That's the point. You know, all I'm saying is that you said, what did I set out to learn? I set out to learn whether my decision making was as good as I hoped it would be. And that my judgments were as good as how they'd be. How could I improve that judgment-making process? What did I need to do to improve that judgment-making process? And I'm still learning that process as this business matures. But the point I'm making is I think you may learn more from when those things go right. Because if you learn from when they go well, then I think, you know, all you can do is say, oh, I'm so smart and clever. Didn't I make the right judgment there? You know, we invested $75 million into a hotel business a couple of years ago and sold it. 18 months later for $150 million, right? Well, you know, what am I going to learn from that? Uh, okay, I saw, Todd and I saw an opportunity, did it, executed it, and got out at the right time. Okay, that's just judgment. I'd much rather learn from mistakes. You know, if I've had, you know, my major mistakes, major problems have been construction related so far. You know, where, you know, we've allowed things to move around a bit. That's a common problem in real estate. Um, so, you know, I just think that you learn a lot more about yourself when you've got to sort out a problem than when patting yourself on the back. And if you look at it that way, then you're more likely not to, you know, to, you're more likely to ensure that you'll sort problems out in the future and that you'll be successful in the future. So we're now in, we've posted the founding of, of Kane in 2014, moving 2015, and I understand everything now changes, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we were split geographically, US, Europe, when we started. And we did a some number of big deals in 2014 in the UK, including a joint venture with Galliard, which has been hugely successful. And we also wrote a £400 million loan over the Shell Centre for Alma Cantor, led by Mike Hussey, which was repaid. Always good to get your loans repaid with interest. And then the guy that was running the American business didn't really like the way it was operating and decided he wanted to do his own thing. And rather, and when he said to me, you know, do you want to come do it with me? I said, no. And then Todd turned around to me and said, come on, let's just do this together and you run the whole. And and I guess it's another example of taking a bit of risk where most people would have said, no, here was I, a Londoner by birth and never having lived in America, taking on responsibility for going in investment business in, in the United States. And since that time, we've grown hugely in America and I've got a big team out there now. We've got investments in Boston, big investments in Miami. And in Los Angeles, we've got huge investment in the Waldorf Astoria Beverly Hilton Hotel. And, you know, it's just that I, I, have, I have a very simple mantra that if you have an opportunity in front of you that makes sense, if you don't do it, you probably won't come back and have a, you won't have a second go at that opportunity. You know, when you see the footballers, if Real Madrid or Barcelona come calling, if they say no, it's highly unlikely that Real Madrid and Barcelona are coming back a second time. And I think that I've lived by, provided the risk is acceptable, I will have a go. And that has proved to be another really good decision for me because we've got a phenomenal business in America now, grown it through great people. And, you know, it's taken that opportunity. I, I think there's a, a point that I want to make, though, about my own business style that I think is really important, which I, I don't know if it comes out, but I want to say it anyway. I believe in enabling people around me. Okay, I love having people around me who are cleverer than me, who know more than me and are better than me. And I love enabling them. And I love, you know, I want to treat people and I do treat people as equals. They are all partners and colleagues of mine. And it is that culture whereby you treat people the way that you yourself would like to be treated, which is hugely important to me. I did it through Oldswang and I did it at uh, Kane. You know, the nicest thing I've read in years about myself, not that one should read things about oneself, is that when Oldswang merged with Cameron McKenna, which is in about 2017, I suppose, 16, 17, a member of the general office, you know, was one of the guys doing the photocopying and delivering the post, wrote a post on LinkedIn 10 years after I'd left 
thanking me for the golden years at Oldsway, and he marked out the humanity and the way in which he had been treated by me as a human being. And I think that, to me, is the bigger testament to everything and about building businesses and about developing your career. You know, my favorite book when I was at school was To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. And it wasn't just the racial undercurrents, which obviously I found fascinating in the way that the whites were so poorly treating the blacks in the South of America. But it was when the father says to the children, always make sure you, you know, walk in the other man's shoes. And I think that's a mantra by which I've lived my life. And I've always tried to be open and transparent with people on that basis because I want to treat people the way in which I would want to be treated. And I think if you do that, it doesn't matter which jurisdiction you're in, you've got a chance of succeeding. Now, there will be times that people take advantage of that transparency, but I would rather live my life having that risk of being taken advantage of rather than changing my philosophy. One of my old law partners, I, we've had a bit of dispute recently in the business, and uh, he said to me, Johnny, you know, don't doubt your methodology because you've come across a problem using honesty and transparency. Better to stick to what's worked so well for you over 20 years, and I've watched it work for you for 20 years, stick to it. And I, I will stick to it because I do believe that honesty and transparency is the right way forward. You know, when we were coming, before we came into this, this room, I, I, um, I was going to do a bit of back, background, wasn't I? I was going to speak to a few people who, who knew you in order to prepare me for, for what we were going to get involved in. And I think this is, this is probably quite a nice, a nice time to introduce this. So this is what's, um, I asked someone what their first impression was, Jonathan Goldstein, when they, when they met you in the Ronson days. And they, this is how they described it. They said, before, before the meeting, I was rather intimidated by this, this sort of superhero type figure in terms of what I've been led to believe, in terms of what, what, he was, what I was about to get involved in. But almost immediately, you get the sense of this person cares very dearly about the relationships they're involved in. Not, it's not a matter of a series of transactions. And I think, I think that's, that, that sounds like it's, it is, it's been sort of picked up by, by, by clearly a lot of people who've worked for you. Why is that so rare, though? Why is that noteworthy? Because that sounds obvious, doesn't it? It does. But I think that most people are not worried about, you know, the, look, I mean, take a different way. If you're in the super class of super rich and super successful, that's often because you've got a gene missing about not caring about what other people think about you. Okay, and you can name names and put them all in that category. Think of them. You'll think of them. Now, trust me, I'm not going to name them. I'll be sued. For me, the way in which other people perceive me is very important. It's a very important part of my makeup. But it's not just that. I want people to feel comfortable and I want people to enjoy the experience of working with us, of working with me and, 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 and being at home in that process. Because as I've said to you, it's a very, very important philosophy of mine to walk in another person's shoes. And, and, you know, I don't want to spend my life being uncomfortable. And why would I want anybody around me to be uncomfortable? So right from the beginning, Oldswain, you know, the, the, the post room was a very male-dominated environment, okay, just was a lot of carrying around and stuff. And uh, understanding, you know, what's the common denominator? Football, right? Great common on I love football, right? So I, I knew the football teams of all the guys, and every Monday morning I'd go down there. I'd rather talk to them than talk to most of my partners. And it's the same today, right? You know, if someone's got a problem in my business and it's their mother who's not well, why would I not want to care for that person in the same way as I did for my own wife, who was not well a couple of years ago, or my father who was dead sick last year and unfortunately passed away? I, I think that it's just an issue of humanity, right? I, I, I don't understand employers who don't care for their people. I don't understand people who want to be brutal to those around you. That doesn't mean to say you can't lose your rag and get cross and angry at times, often with yourself, but sometimes with others. That's part of the game, right? But at the heart of it, you know, people are people and we're all the same. You know, we all bleed at the end of the day and we all, you know, we all start in the same place and end in the same place. And it's only the middle bit that's different for us. And I think too many people forget that. And uh, it's a humanity, it's a way of approaching people that I think is really important. It's why I believe, for example, that as an industry, we're terrible with diversity because we haven't treated, we all want to look the same. We, we haven't treated different people who look differently or act differently or come from a different background in a, 
you know, in the right way. We just haven't. And, and, and you know, we're in denial about it. And we haven't got the right opportunities and we, you know, we haven't got the right situations. We're doing up our office and I bought a piece of art for the reception, which is pretty shocking, simply because I want people to remember every time they walk through the office that the objective of our business is to treat people the same, is to be diverse in our thought process, to not sit into groupthink. You know, when I first joined the property industry, the thing that made me laugh the most was the city agents, rental letting agents. They were all the same, white, middle-class boys, all with nicknames for each other, Clufty and Tufty and Dumpty and this one. <laughs> and it drove me crazy, absolutely drove me crazy. Oh, I'll take Dusty out for a beer. He'll tell me who he's acting for. And I used to say, are you mad? You just talk rubbish. You just talk rubbish. Stop it. Listen to yourself. But most people can't do that. Most people sort of just come from the same background and are incapable of, uh, you know, thinking, you know, their own way and thinking differently. I'm looking down at this long list of questions I've still got to to ask. Um, let me, let's pare these down a little bit. So we talked about sort of 2015, that change. You're, you're now running the, uh, both the UK and the US business. You talked about some of the deals that are happening with, uh, with Kane as well. At any point, is there a risk of Kane? taking on too much it's lender it's investor it's developer you know very recently it's operator interesting because the thing that i have done most in the pandemic is growing the management team in other words i have gone out and found people who i think are far more capable than i am a guy called nick franklin out in the states who's been an operator at disney for almost 20 years a woman called ellen brunsberg who used to run GE in Europe and came out of Morgan Stanley. Uh, you know, I, I've grown the management team exactly because of that. And what I've actually found is the more that I've had these people around, the more, you know, wind I get on my own sails because the more headspace it gives me. So, of course, there's always that risk. But when you look around at other businesses like ours that have grown, you know, we've come quite fast to a certain point. You know, some of the others, the big, the big behemoths have been around for decades. So we've got a long way to go. We're nowhere near the scale of any of these. But uh, it is important to answer your question a different way. It is fundamentally important to have capable people around you who can expand your capabilities and expand your bandwidth as opposed to thinking that you can do everything yourself. You know, we did the Prezzo deal, and I've done it with a very, very good friend of mine helping me as a consultant to the business. And I could not have done it without him. He has been an absolute godsend. And as it happens, we're a good double act uh, because he's much better on detail than I am. But, you know, I think it's understanding your core skills and then bringing in other people to help you complement that. Given what you've achieved throughout your career to date, has your view on success changed over time? Um, Well, I think initially when you start, you know, you, you aspire to be a partner in a law firm and then you aspire financially. Uh, reputation does that mellow yeah i think it does reputational respect becomes incredibly important being seen to be doing the right things now uh, and we haven't really touched upon this in this discussion i'm very very involved in my community and i spend a lot of time doing that that's a very very important part of my makeup so i think the definition of success after a time becomes a very different aspect of the way in which you view yourself and you're viewed by others and then the success comes down to the definition of how your children are prospering and are they healthy and are they happy, good, and are they good people. So, you know, you, you measure, I think, as you get older by very, very different yardsticks than you do in your 20s and 30s when I think you're much more empirically focused on where you're getting to and how you're coming up through the ladder. Now I, I don't measure myself in that same way. I'm much more focused on the success of the business. And I don't see myself as successful. And you know, my FD would tell me off at certain times and say that I don't plan for certain aspects and I sort of just ignore them. But I, I, I just think that, you know, the minute you start to believe in yourself, then the minute that's the minute you're dead. So I, I don't look at myself and say, you know, you're a success or, you know, either financially or reputationally, because I know that's yesterday and I know tomorrow I could have my head in the gutter with my head being kicked along by a by, by a horse, by the passing horse. Is that not a paralysing thought, though? 
I'm just thinking about the, what you said at the start about having the confidence to make decisions. Um, I think it can paralyze you if you allow it to. But if you wake up every morning and you are determined to make today better than yesterday was, and you're determined to make a difference in that day, and you're clear what you're going trying to achieve in that day, then I don't think it becomes paralyzing. Okay. I think I think the most important thing is to be aware of your strengths and your weaknesses, to be aware of what you need to do, to be aware of the people around you and how they need to be supported, and then to let them get on with it on that basis, provided, of course, you know what's going on. Let me, I just wanted to revisit something you mentioned. You mentioned about the last 12 months building up the management team and one of the, one of the benefits of that has been giving you more headspace. How's Jonathan Goldstein going to use this new headspace? What's coming up? Well, I think what you're doing here is you're looking for ways to, 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 to come out of the pandemic with your existing investment stronger and to take advantage of current opportunities. You know, if I did not have the headspace, I could never have executed against the deal of 180, you know, mid-market restaurants in three weeks. Just couldn't have done it. You know, but, you know, in Europe, I've got a guy called John Cole who runs the debt business who has, you know, been with me since day one in this business and is absolutely phenomenal. And I've got a guy called Richard Pilkington who runs um, our European business who's done a great, great job in taking that on over the last you know, two, three years and taking responsibility off my plate. And he's sort of, you know, he's as obsessed as I am in getting up and getting things done. So that's been a good partnership in that way. So it, it has enabled me to see opportunities. And there's going to be more. There's going to be more. And if you believe in the spaces that we believe in and the gateway cities that we believe in, there's more opportunity coming. Um, because, you know, this lockdown is, is, is tough. It's tough, tough for many. I think many people would look at, look to you for a bit of a lead, wouldn't they? So where are you going to be spending your, your, your greater attention? Is it UK or US? Well, if I could get there, I'd spend a lot of time in the US. My ambition is to spend the summer in the US because I think there's going to be some huge opportunities coming. We've got a couple of growth businesses that I'm really excited about over there, and I'd love to spend some more time in the US. But of course, you know, I'm only one person in this world, so I have to wait to see what the uh, governments decide. You know, but we, you know, we've got big exposure to the UK and big exposure to Europe, so there's a lot to do. But I have to admit, if I had the opportunity, I would be spending the sec- a lot of the second half of the year in the US to take advantage of big opportunities that I think are coming. So, Jonathan, I think we've probably got time there for, for, for one more question. And I, and I want to be able to give people the real benefit of your experience you mentioned before about learning from your mistakes. In recent memory, what would you say has been that, that biggest mistake and biggest lesson learned? I think the biggest lesson uh, when you're investing capital is that you have to have an ability to go with your instincts. And if it's you're the vast majority of the capital, you have to be able to execute against those instincts. And if that means, unfortunately, that uh, you have to have some hostility with your partner, However uncomfortable and unfortunate that is, you've got to do it. You know, when I was a kid, I was lucky enough at the age of 16 to be sent to America on a leadership course. It's called the International Leadership Training Course. It was one of the Jewish youth organizations used to send seven kids a year to America. for this mind-blowing experience where you traveled around New York and Washington and Philadelphia, and then you went off to a camp for four weeks. But there was a phrase that stuck with me since the age of 16, and that's called risking hostility. As a leader, You have to be prepared to risk hostility. In other words, there are times when you will make decisions which, which, notwithstanding all the stuff I've talked about with humanity and treating people properly, right? Ultimately, decisions are decisions. And ultimately, you have to make a decision. And not everybody's going to love that decision. And you have to be prepared to risk hostility. You know, the greatest change I saw between being in the law and going to work with Gerald when you're in the law, you've got 90 people saying, why did Jonathan make that decision? Is it because of me? Is it because of him? Is he trying to favor this one, trying to favor that one? That didn't happen with Gerald. It was very clear. There was a decision-making line. He was the ultimately the CEO. Decision made, move on. And that is the best thing about corporate life. You have a decision. Now, people either live with it or not live with it. But you have to be able to make these decisions even if they risk hostility. And, and the point I've learned most more than anything in the last few years is that I cannot sit in a business opportunity where 
decisions are made which go against my instincts. If I'm the majority, if I'm the minority, then I have to live with it, right? But if I'm the majority, I have to have that ability to execute against that because otherwise I drive myself crazy. That's the biggest lesson I think I've learned more than anything through examples over the course of the last three, four years. As ever, I'm, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to squeeze every bit, last bit of juice out of this before, before we wrap up because I'm really enjoying it. There's one, there's one thing that I wanted to ask, and this is about the your personal learning curve. And I'm curious, what was the steepest learning curve? Those early days in real estate with, with Ronson or your first foray into the US with Kane? No, the early days with Gerald. Why? In other words, I, I thought I knew a little bit about real estate, but I realized I knew absolutely nothing when I joined Gerald. Absolutely nothing. And just to... I, I, I hope he's not listening, but I'll tell this story. So Gerald and Heron House, the old Heron House on Marylebone Road, had a boardroom, and then there was an executive toilet on the opposite. And uh, we used to sit in the boardroom, and they'd use terminology. I didn't understand what on earth they were talking about. So I used to slip out, and I used to ring a mate of mine called Stephen Lewis and say, Stephen, what on earth does that mean, or this mean, or that mean? I mean, simple simple stuff like ERVs, or you know. and then you'd find that people use different phrases, caps or yields or you know, multiples or whatever. And and so the first, I would say, the first 12 to 18 months with Gerald, I didn't know what on earth I was talking about. And I really worked hard at focusing on what I could do really well and then just listening and listening and listening. But I've always been a quick learner. So I would say the steepest part of my career was at the age of 41 when I left. See, most people think that's too old already, but I'd do it now if I had the chance, 54. I met with a friend of mine recently who's struggling to know what to do with his career. And I said to him, you know what? You're doing this. Just take it. You've got to take steps backwards to go forwards again. And that's what I don't think most people are prepared to do. I don't think most people are prepared to take themselves from their comfort zone back a couple of steps into an area of discomfort to maximize their potential. And as a result, people stagnate. I am not prepared to stagnate. It is an anathema to me, the notion of stagnation. And therefore, I'm, I would be happy to have that st- steep learning curve again tomorrow. I, I, the, the reason it's not going into America is I had the protection of my partners who could guide me in the American way in things I didn't understand. Um, but absolutely, the steepest learning curve was Ronson. And absolutely, I'll tell you that most people are not prepared to go through that process because they're too nervous of their own capabilities and they're too set in their ways, which is a bad thing, I think. Well, let's draw this to a close now then, Jonathan. I've got to, I've got to say a really, really big thank you for joining me. You've been extremely humble in sort of, a, uh, in sort of dispelling those superhero sort of myths. Um, but, I, um, but I have no doubt people then, as a consequence, have learned a tremendous amount. And I dare anyone to say they haven't found that incredibly inspiring. So thank you again. Nick, thanks for your time. I've appreciated it. The Urban Land Institute is the oldest and largest network of cross-disciplinary real estate and land use experts in the world, with more than 45,000 global members. The ULI's ethos of personal development makes them an ideal collaborator on our podcast, and we encourage our listeners to learn more and become members by signing up at uli.org forward slash join, quoting the promo code ACRE. Thank you for listening.